Hello, I'm Edith Brown Weiss, Professor of International Law at Georgetown Law School in the United States. The title of my lecture today is The Commons, Public Goods, and International Law. We are now entering a new epoch, the Anthropocene, in which human beings are a potent force shaping the condition and the health of our planet, shaping local and regional human environments. Climate change vividly illustrates this for all of us. Already five years ago, the United Nations Environment Program's Global and Environmental Outlook concluded that the Earth's systems are being pushed to the limit and warned that, quote, several critical thresholds are approaching or have been exceeded beyond which abrupt and nonlinear changes lie to the life support functions of the planet, unquote. At the same time, we're now living in a kaleidoscopic world with many new actors in addition to states, <clears throat> and with rapid change as new issues emerge and instant coalitions form and deform. Dangers in one part of the world rapidly spread to other parts. Increasingly, we are concerned about the commons and public goods. We begin then by defining a commons and a global public good. A commons has several, two characteristics. The first, others can't be excluded from using the commons, and one's use of it potentially creates rivalry with another's use. A public good shares the property of non-excludability, but it's also non-rivalrous in that consumption of the public good by one person does not reduce the quantity available to others. There's enough to go around, at least up to a high limit. Global public goods are those whose benefits are spread widely across space and time. Now let's look at these concepts in international law. Now the classic example of a commons is an unfenced village common area upon which villagers can graze their sheep. Any villager can have access. There are no limits on the number of sheep that can be grazed, except that at some point, the number of sheep grazing will make the area unsustainable and all will lose the capacity to graze. Garrett Hardin famously termed this the tragedy of the commons, because villagers maximize their short-term material benefits at the expense of long-term viability and benefits. Jurists have referred to the high seas and to fisheries on the high seas, to the atmosphere, to the climate system, and to outer space as global commons. Global commons are rivalrous in the sense that one's use of the commons could affect another's use. But the, if the commons would not physically disappear. Antarctica has been labeled a global commons since its health is central to the climate system. And at least for now, no state can claim ownership or sovereignty over it. That issue is on ice. Now, some have proposed that the internet is a global commons and should be treated in law as such. While it is technically rivalrous in the sense that its computer networks can accommodate a finite amount of traffic, in practice such bandwidth congestion can be solved by constructing physical infrastructure, such as fiber optic cables, more efficient protocols for routing and directing internet traffic, and billing systems for usage. In practice, the internet need not be rivalrous. 
The characteristics of a commons as being non-excludable, however, is doubtful for the Internet. For states can use domestic laws to block various kinds of content and destroy or disable physical infrastructure to deny access to the Internet. Now, the term global public goods is sometimes used interchangeably with global commons. But the two have different characteristics and deserve separate treatment. A distinctive feature of global public goods is that measures are needed to produce them and to maintain them. Thus, a global commons, such as that high-level ozone layer, climate, or the atmosphere, is not per se a global public good. A stable climate system or an unpolluted atmosphere would be. Other examples include the control of communicable diseases, such as Ebola and SARS, conservation of biological diversity, and international financial stability. Now, this distinction between a commons and a global public good has important implications for the norms and for the obligations in public international law. Much of the analysis relating to the global commons does apply to global public goods. However, with global public goods, it's not only the use of the good, as in the commons, it's also the technologies for producing the public good. In public international law, the production of many public goods has the characteristics of what Nordhaus has called weak link technologies in which the overall production of the public good is only as effective as the weakest link in the chain, as, for example, in controlling SARS or in building a dike to hold back water. Producing global public goods generally requires cooperation and coordination of actions, as also uh, for the commons. But for an example for global public goods, let's look to combating illegal drugs. States agree to take certain measures domestically and to coordinate with other affected states in doing so. The doctrine of common and shared responsibilities, which was recently articulated in the United Nations General Assembly report from the sponsored drug conference in April 2016, captures this message. In a kaleidoscopic world, the category of global public goods has important implications for international law because many actors besides states are key to producing and maintaining them. Global public goods brings together public and private international law, domestic and international law, in order to address problems that are in themselves matters within public international law. For example, the safety and health of workers in textile manufacturing plants who produce goods for a global supply chain offer an example. So what about the options that are available for dealing with global commons and for dealing with public goods issues? Let me suggest that we can view our Earth as a global commons, with the problem being one of how to manage it sustainably so that people today share equitably in it 
and so that we pass it to future generations in as good quality and with comparable options and diversity as we received it. The sustainable use of the earth is also a global public good. Conceptually, one can identify four options that are reflected in existing public international law to address commons and public goods issues. As Hardin showed with his hypothetical of the sheep grazing on the commons, if we do nothing, it will lead to a tragedy of the commons. In that, in that example, the commons could no longer sustain grazing of sheep. But similarly, if we take no action to ensure that we use our planet sustainably, as by refusing to limit greenhouse gas emissions, the planet may warm and change climate conditions sufficiently to produce a global tragedy of the commons. The four options are as follows. First, to rely solely on a state's exercise of national sovereignty within its jurisdiction. Secondly, to reach international agreements or conclude other legal instruments. Third, to rely on economic incentives or market instruments. And fourth, to use voluntary cooperative measures and actions. Now let's consider each of these in turn. The first I call to privatize, which is really the exercise of national sovereignty. And the Westphalian system provides for sovereignty of each state. And conceptually, this is analogous to privatizing the commons. Every state has a responsibility for the area under its jurisdiction or control. And one conceptual option is always to privatize it in the belief that if we own something, we are surely going to take good care of it. In terms of the sheep grazing on the commons, the argument goes that no one would let the sheep graze in excess of the number that they could do so sustainably on their own piece of property. Internationally, states have assumed the role of a private property owner for the areas within their jurisdiction or control. This option of states exercising absolute national sovereignty over their lands has indeed been tempered by international, bilateral, and multilateral agreements that limit the exercise of the sovereignty. But this option has not been effective in warding off the transition to the new Anthropocene epoch. States have focused on their rights in relation to others and not on their obligations uh, to others, on their own immediate benefits and local concerns without sufficient attention to the longer run effects and the broader concerns, on special powerful interests sometimes, whether economic or political, and not on the health and welfare of all their citizens and, most importantly, the integrity and resilience of their environment, and on the status quo without sufficient attention to change and to the emergence of new actors that assume roles and functions that affect their own roles and functions and the health of the areas under their jurisdiction. States will continue to be central. National sovereignty will continue to be important but the option of absolute national sovereignty no longer suffices, indeed, if it ever did. So that turns to the second option, the one that international law focuses on, which is international agreements. In the tragedy of the commons, that led to village regulation 
as an option to manage it sustainably. In international law, we can articulate this as international agreements between countries, non-binding legal instruments, and what I call a third layer even, which are voluntary commitments with varying specificity. Now, as noted previously, the number of international agreements has increased dramatically within the last 60 years. And that's both because the number of states have increased, but the issues that need attention have really exploded in number. For environmental issues alone, already by 1990, there were about 900 legal instruments. And that includes both binding agreements and non-binding uh, legal ones that were concerned either fully or in significant part with environmental issues. By the year 2017, there are over 54,000 international agreements that are registered with the United Nations on many different subjects. And these figures don't even capture the many non-binding legal instruments. Now, international agreements or other international legal instruments are very attractive. They set the rules of the road by which states and other actors are to behave. They represent a consensus on what needs to be done. In the context of the commons, there are two problems that international agreements need to address to be effective. First, we need to avoid the free rider problem, and we need to avoid the so-called weakest link or pollution haven, which if weak enough or large enough can defeat the agreement or other legal instruments' effectiveness. Now, it's the economists and political scientists that have written extensively about the free rider problem. For the simplest analogy, consider a shortage of fresh water in a city or village that's used to having fresh water. If 90% of the users cut way back on their use of the water, the other 10% may consider they can use the water in just as wasteful ways as they have done before, since the water crisis now is now under control. So those users have not cut back on their water usage. They've paid none of the costs, but they've received the benefits of the continued water supply. They are known as free riders, riding for free. The same problem of free riders arises in a global commons, such as the protection of the stratospheric ozone layer. If most countries were to eliminate limit or eliminate their emissions of chemicals that deplete the ozone layer, some might continue using them, thus paying none of the costs and still reaping the benefits of a robust ozone layer. And this was addressed successfully in the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. The pollution haven or weakest link technology argument arises if a few countries with large enough internal markets stay out of an agreement in the context of the ozone layer, and in doing so, destroy the effectiveness of those countries that are parties to the agreement. International agreements address both the free rider and the weak link or pollution haven issues. The most common way to deal with both free riders and the weak link or pollution haven in international environmental law is a provision in the agreements that bans trade with non-parties to the agreement. The notable examples include the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer, the Basel Convention on the Control of Transboundary Movements of Hazardous Waste, and the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, 
all of which limit trade with non-party states. The Montreal Protocol includes an extra penalty for a state that exports to a non-party because it can't deduct the amount that's exported in calculating its own domestic consumption of the controlled chemical as required by the protocol. Now, these provisions provide an incentive to states to join the agreement, since they would otherwise be excluded from trade in the controlled items with other countries. They serve to ensure that all states share in paying the cost of the benefit they receive, and they provide, uh, and they provide uh, benefits therefrom. Such provisions that ban trade with non-parties, though, have to be consistent with the general agreement on tariffs and trade so that each of the three agreements referenced here includes language that enables trade with non-parties if the obligations of the agreement are fulfilled. The other method for protecting against a state becoming a haven that could defeat the effectiveness of the agreement is to provide for a special fund or other assistance to help states come into compliance if they join the agreement. For example, to induce Brazil, China, and India to join the Montreal Protocol Member states set up a very substantial Montreal Protocol fund to help them and other countries to comply with the protocol, for they had large enough internal markets that they could otherwise defeat the effectiveness of the measures in the protocol. Now, if these measures are to be effective, there needs to be monitoring of trade in the controlled items, review by the state parties, data transparency, and systems in place to address issues of non-compliance with the agreement and the reasons for non-compliance with the agreement. And the Montreal Protocol led the way by establishing an implementation committee which considers the reasons for non-compliance and has been able to tailor the remedies to the reasons. Now, while international agreements and other international legal instruments are essential for addressing all global commons issues, they're not sufficient. There are too many actors in a kaleidoscopic world, and change is too rapid to rely only on formally articulated legal instruments by states or even by powerful non-governmental actors. Moreover, there could be costly administrative costs in implementing some of them. There's a third option, and that third option is to incentivize through the use of economic instruments. This refers to economic instruments such as fees, quantitative limits, with the market allocating the rights to use the limited items. Uh, these are deemed to be attractive because they can produce the desired results more efficiently, and if properly designed, it is argued, with fewer administrative costs. Uh, just to go back to Hardin's strategy of the commons, it would mean either setting a fee for each sheep that's to graze on the village commons, or setting a limit on the number of sheep that can graze on the commons, allocating the rights to graze, and then permitting those who have the rights to trade them. Now, in theory, setting a fee or setting a quantitative limit should, read, should yield the same result, only the number of sheep graze that can do so sustainably on the commons. If the fee is set correctly, for example, the number of sheep that would graze in the commons would be the same as the number that, would, that could, in fact, sustainably graze there. Permits to graze could be allocated on some basis or by auction. However, in practice, it's very difficult to set a fee that produces exactly the limited amount of sheep or pollutants or whatever, and in part 
because the information it's required to do so is not available. Now, the use of fees raises inherent problems, which legal arrangements have to address. Some people or states can afford the fees, others cannot. Would there be special subsidized fees on equity grounds? Would the fees be graduated so that the last few would command higher prices? If fees took the form of taxes, similar equity issues may arise related to the ability to pay, needs, etc. Uh, to return to the analogy of, of the commons and sheep, how do we allocate the number permitted among those wanting to raise sheep? Do they go to those who are already raising the sheep, or in the context of pollution, to those who are already polluting, or on some other basis, on a proportional basis, on the basis of needs? Could farmers, in the context of the sheep, trade the rights to graze the sheep? And if trading is allowed, are there any conditions required for such a trade to take place? Would those who are impoverished be tempted to trade their white rights to wealthier farmers or entities, but in return be unable to find sustainable means of living? Or would it be done on the basis of an auction, or a combination of an auction and a giving away of entitlements? Now, we have experience in international law with such economic instruments to address commons issues, particularly in the area of climate change. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change provides for joint implementation of commitments of Annex I developed countries with countries that are not Annex I, which means that Annex I countries could satisfy at least part of their goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by taking measures to limit greenhouse gas emissions in developing or non-Annex I countries. And the Kyoto Protocol is the classic example of invoking economic incentives. The Kyoto Protocol sets specific quantified limits to emissions of greenhouse gases for Annex B countries. The European Union and countries within it, for example, were required to reduce emissions to 92% of the base year by 2008 to 2012. The economic instru instruments came into play because the European Union was permitted under Article 4 to consolidate all of the emissions of member states in determining whether the EU has, set the has met the total emissions for the entire body, which means some states could emit more than their limit and others less, so long as the overall amount represents 92% of the base share. The Kyoto Protocol incorporates additional economic instruments. Article 12 established a clean development mechanism whereby Annex I countries could satisfy their commitments in part by reducing greenhouse gas emissions in non-Annex I countries. And Article 17 lets developed countries in Annex B to the protocol engage in emissions trading among themselves. And that was intended to mean that a state emitting less than allowed under its obligation could trade the unused emission allowances to another state that was having trouble in meeting its obligation to reduce emissions. The argument was that allowing trading of emissions creates an incentive for a country to limit its emissions more than otherwise because it can essentially market those emissions and benefit from uh, doing so. Now, economic instruments such as those outlined for dealing with climate change have also been proposed for managing natural resources sustainably. These include proposals for quotas 
with marketable permits for fisheries and for forest exploitation. They are offered as an option for implementing sustainable development goals. The instruments by themselves, though, do not ensure that the objectives will be achieved. There are many problems with implementing the instruments, with monitoring transactions, and with adjusting limits to respond to new evidence and potentially issues of equity. They may, however, contribute to a solution if states and other actors regard them as legitimate and provisions are made to ensure that they're not misused or undermined by corruption. So what are other options? And here we come to what I call the fourth option, which in a kaleidoscopic world is a very important one, and that's really cooperation, the taking of voluntary measures. It's for states and other actors to engage voluntarily in cooperative behavior to manage the commons. This differs from the other three in that these actors are not required to engage in certain behavior, but do so to maintain a common good because it's in their long-term interest, or maybe it's because they enhances their reputation or is morally responsible especially in a kaleidoscopic world. With many relevant actors in addition to states, we need to focus on facilitating voluntary cooperation and norms that encourage this. For this and for states, this entails obligation toward others in addition to the usual rights of national sovereignty. What then induces voluntary cooperative behavior? One explanation is that we cooperate to achieve a good that we simply can't achieve alone. In game theory, this is considered to be a positive sum game. And there are many examples in which states have cooperated to achieve ends that their individual efforts could not attain. These include the initial international efforts in the late 1800s to gather weather data from states in order to be able to make weather forecasts which no state could have done on its own. This positive incentive for cooperation is important in the production of global public goods. And the opposite of this is that we cooperate to avoid a situation from getting worse, which may be known as a decreasing uh, sum uh, game. In the context of the global commons, if states and other actors are essentially locked together in the same commons over an extended period of time. It is in their interests to cooperate to ensure the sustainability of the commons, or otherwise they all may lose. The protection of the stratospheric ozone layer illustrates this principle. For states and all other actors are inherently linked in the condition of the ozone layer over the lifetime of their existence. The climate system illustrates this, because if we do not cooperate, we can all go down together. The sink ships regardless. It is the ultimate decreasing sum game that can provide an incentive to cooperation including for voluntary measures 
or measures that may differ from state to state or from actors to actors, but all taken toward the same end. Now, in order to induce such cooperative behavior, states and act other actors need to have information about the options available, about benefits and costs, and importantly, about the behavior of the other participants. Thus, monitoring and transparency are essential, as are measures to ensure compliance with the desired and necessary behavior. While these measures may be thought of as traditionally as sanctions, they may also be measures which bring sunshine to the behavior, to affect reputation, or to build capacity if the lack of capacity is the reason for not complying. The goal is to avoid a tragedy of the global commons by moving states and other actors from a situation in which they are increasingly worse off to one in which they use the commons on a sustainable basis and make at least modest gains. Now, implicit in all of this is that states and other actors share similar values, namely that they want to conserve the commons and to access for their benefits. In a kaleidoscopic world, voluntary cooperative measures are essential to keep pace with change, which is rapid, and to accommodate the many different and fluctuating groups of actors. States need such measures because they cannot rely only on a timely basis on formal regulatory instruments. This means that we need to focus on identifying global, regional, and local commons, understanding the relationship between them, and fostering shared values in how we use and protect them. Some concluding observations. The Westphalian system by itself is inadequate to address global commons or global public goods problems. It doesn't ensure that we manage the global commons and lesser commons effectively to sustain them for others to access and benefit from, nor does it ensure the collective actions that are necessary to produce global public goods. A study on global public goods published by the United Nations Development Program identified three critical elements. Jurisdictional gaps between national policymaking and international needs, participation gaps in which actors other than states, namely civil society and the private sector, participate only on the fringes, and incentive gaps for states and other actors to comply with international agreements. This means that for international law to be an effective instrument in maintaining the integrity of commons and in producing public goods, the conception of public international law will need to expand to be more inclusive, to encompass relevant domestic laws, to integrate actors beyond states, and to provide incentives other than some of the traditional measures. Collective actions embodied in law, non-binding legal instruments, and voluntary commitments are necessary to secure even the most basic public goods within and among countries and to address our critical commons issues. Finally, one concept in international law that is relevant for both global commons and for global public goods is that of the common concern of humankind. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Convention on Biological Diversity provide in the preambles that climate change and biodiversity, two very different matters, are, quote, the common concern of humankind, 
unquote. No document defined then or now defines what constitutes the common concern of humankind or delineates what it, what it includes. But I suggest that the concept may merit further elaboration because it could provide a normative basis for substantive measures and procedural measures to address the problems and the processes for doing so as we move to protect our commons and to produce and maintain global public goods. Thank you.